Amen. It's the most wonderful time of the year, but not for everybody. Consider, uh, for example, a man named Lindsay. His father was a distant and severe man, and he worked him especially hard during the holidays. Lindsay was uh, given extra chores at the family ranch, and his dad would whip him if he didn't work hard enough, sometimes to the point that he would draw blood. Lindsay lived in fear of those beatings, but not just the physical abuse. Uh, there were verbal floggings and name-calling and insults and belittling put-downs. His dad seemed especially harsh at Christmas time. Those memories stayed with Lindsay all of his life. They tormented him like demons every December. One friend said this, Lindsay was never able to find happiness. He became a hard-drinking hellraiser who went from woman to woman and couldn't find peace or success. Lindsay himself once said, I hate Christmas because of pop, and I always will. It brings back the pain and fear I suffered as a child, and if I ever do myself in, it will be at Christmas time. Some people dream of white Christmases, but Lindsay's Christmases were always dark. So in December 1989, Lindsay finally couldn't take it anymore. He angrily watched White Christmas one more time and then ended his life. You see, Lindsay's father was Bing Crosby himself, the man who sung that famous song, I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas. But for Lindsay Crosby, the, the whole Christmas season was a reminder of the pain that he endured at the hands of his father. I wonder if there's anyone in this room who can relate at some level with Lindsay Crosby. Your, your dad probably didn't have the, the fame or the fortune that Bing Crosby had, but your dad, like Bing Crosby, was or is both frail and fallen. Your dad, like mine, is, is a fallen man, just like Bing Crosby was, a sinner. And sinners, predictably, sin. And even if your dad never did some of the heinous things that Bing did to his son, Lindsay, the truth is, for many of us, if we're honest, we may have some scars from the sins of our fathers. Maybe your dad was abusive in some way. Maybe he was absent. Maybe he was distant. Like my, my own father's father, who did not tell his son, my dad, that he loved him until just before he died. Maybe that's been something like your experience. You've experienced pain because of the fallenness, the sin of your dad. Or maybe it's his frailty. Every single father is frail. 
We're beset not just by sin, but by suffering. And so we live in this world where our bodies fail us, and we're not able to do all that we want to do. And so perhaps you have pain when you think about your dad because he's lost his ability to do what he used to do. I've had to wrestle with this with my own father as I've watched the debilitating effects of a stroke on his body and his inability to do what he once did as a dad and a grandpa. Or maybe you, you're, you're sad when you think about your father because he's lost his, his memory or is losing it. And I think about my, my grandfather, whom I was named after, Hobson Doris, who wrestled with Alzheimer's for over a decade before he breathed his last breath and watched the agony of losing his mind. Or, or maybe it's just the frailty of knowing that he has lost his life. And when you think of your dad, you think of the fact that he is no longer here. The bottom line is every single person in this room, if you're honest, have some, has some pain when you think about your relationship with your father. Because even the best fathers are frail and fallen except for one father. See, Christmas really can be the most wonderful time of the year, not because the kids are jingle-belling or there's parties for hosting or there's much mistletoeing, but because you understand the love of the Father. So if you're not already there, grab your Bibles and go to Galatians chapter 4. I want to show you the love of this father this morning. Last week, we, we looked at this text as kind of like a springboard to, to get a big picture view of what uh, Christians believe about the doctrine of the Trinity. So we took a bird's eye view. What does the Trinity mean and why does it matter? This morning, we're going to zoom in and begin studying each individual person of the Trinity. So this Sunday, God the Father, next Sunday, God the Son, and then we'll conclude and end the year by looking at God the Spirit all from this text. And the big idea I want you to understand is that you cannot rightly tell the Christmas story without the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So listen to our text one more time with me, if you will. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. With God's help this morning, I want to show you three simple truths about the Father's love from this text. If you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus, this is the love that the Father has for you right now and every single moment for the rest of your life. There will never be a moment where his love for you will wax or wane. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is his love for you. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is the love that we invite you to receive by turning from your sins and trusting in this Jesus. 
So three simple truths about the Father's love. Number one, the Father planned to send his Son. The Father planned to send his Son. On November the 10th, 1984, the University of Maryland football team was trailing the Miami Hurricanes 31 to nothing at halftime. Maryland's head coach decided to bench the starting quarterback with a backup quarterback named Frank Reich. And the new quarterback, Frank, completed 12 of 15 passes for 260 yards, threw three touchdowns, ran for another, and led Maryland to a shocking comeback victory, winning the game 42 to 40. Down 31 nothing at halftime, coming back to win 42 to 40. I think that's how some people think about the story of the Bible. You think God the Father is the starting quarterback, and there he goes in the Old Testament, and he's got this plan, you know, he's going to win the game, and, and he gets things going, but for whatever reason, God the Father falls behind pretty quickly. He creates this perfect garden paradise, but Adam and Eve sin and mess it all up. He floods the earth to start things over, but that doesn't work either because Noah starts sinning pretty quickly after the flood. He calls a nation to reflect his glory, but they mess up repeatedly. He governs them by this long list of laws, but they continue to fail. So all of a sudden, we get to halftime, the New Testament, and Jesus says, I'm the backup quarterback. Let me come in and win the game. That's how I think some of us think about the story of the Bible. You wouldn't say it like that, but maybe you've heard people say things like, God the Father is the God of the Old Testament, and Jesus is the God of the New Testament. But that's a complete misunderstanding of the story of the Bible. The, the coming of Jesus, God the Son, isn't a change in the Father's plan. It's the fulfillment of the Father's plan. It was always the plan to send the Son. He is not the backup quarterback coming in to fix everything that the starter messed up. He is the game plan. And we see that right in the text in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come. That, that word fullness is connected to the word fulfilled, if you've been with us studying Matthew's gospel over the past few months, uh, that word fulfilled is all over the gospel of Matthew. Uh, in other words, what, what, what Paul is saying here in Galatians is that the sending of the Son was planned and purposeful. It was an act of God the Father. God didn't send Jesus into Bethlehem as plan B. It was always the plan of the Father. It's been the plan of the Father since the beginning of time. Uh, listen to Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world. So before time begins, the Father has a plan, and it involves sending the Son. The text continues, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace 
with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his what? Purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Listen to me, brother, sister, friend. God the Father sending the Son was not an accident. It wasn't a change in the plan. It was always the plan. God the Father planned to send the Son. That's why when you study the Old Testament, you're gonna see glimpses of this plan everywhere. So for example, in Genesis, the father promises to send the seed of a woman to crush the head of the snake. In the fullness of time, the father sent his son, born of a woman, to crush Satan by dying on a cross. In Exodus, a Passover lamb dies instead of the firstborn sons of God's people. And in the fullness of time, the father will send his own son to die as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or in Leviticus, the the scapegoat is sent outside the camp so that God's people can be forgiven. But every year they have to do it again and repeat that ceremony again until the fullness of time when the father sends his son to suffer outside the camp on a cross so that God's people can be forgiven. In Numbers, God's people must look upon a a bronze serpent, and when they look upon the bronze serpent, they can be saved. Jesus says in John chapter 3 that he will be lifted up like that serpent, not on a bronze pole, but on a cross, and whoever looks to him will be saved. And in Deuteronomy, God promises that in time, another prophet will come, someone that we better listen to, and it is none other than Jesus Christ himself. We could do every book of the Bible. All of it is pointing to this Jesus. Why? Because the Father always planned to send his son. So if you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus, I want, you to, I want you to apply this to Monday morning, Tuesday night, Wednesday afternoon. If the Father has been planning to show his love to you by sending his son to die on a cross for you, how in the world could you possibly outsin this God? What is the song we sung earlier? Our sins, they are many. His mercy is what? More. How could you, if he has been planning to show you this love since before the foundation of the world, how could you run so far from him that he cannot chase you down? How could you pry yourself out of his grip? You cannot. If you belong to this Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, then you cannot escape the love of the Father because he planned to send his son. Second truth about the Father's love in this text is that the Father had to send the son. 
Number one, the Father planned to send the Son. Number two, the Father had to send the Son. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the Father was obligated to send Jesus. God the Father would still be holy and righteous and good if he saved nobody. He is not obligated to anyone outside of himself. God has no debts that he must pay. He has no obligation. He doesn't have to send his son. But if you or I or anybody will be saved, he must send his son, for there is no other way that anybody can be saved. Acts chapter 4 verse 11 says, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Or Jesus says about himself in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if anyone is going to be saved, the only way to do it is the Father must send his Son. And the natural question we might ask is why? Why does the Father have to send the Son to save sinners? Two reasons. The first is that we are scandalously sinful. Because we are scandalously sinful. Look at verse 5. The Father sent His Son, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That word redeem... Is, is referring to the, the, the release of a slave from a slave market by paying a price. Uh, this slavery was very different from what we think of when we think about slavery in our country. This wasn't slavery rooted in racism or skin color. This was usually slavery uh, rooted in unpaid debts. Think something like a debtor's prison in the Middle Ages or that sort of thing. So, so you're enslaved because you haven't paid your debts. And the thing is, because you're enslaved, you, you can't pay your debts. You, or if you're thrown in debtor's prison, you can't pay your debts. And so God sends his son, the father sends his son to pay the price so that you and I can be redeemed. Notice the text says to redeem those who are under the law. What does it mean to be under the law? It, mean, it means that the law applies to you, right? It's your responsibility to obey it fully. So if you're driving here to church on a Sunday morning and you're driving down with Creek Road where the speed limit is 35 miles an hour and you decide to go 55 and the police officer pulls you over and you say, well, sorry, officer, I understand you're confused, but I'm actually not from Pocosin. I live in Newport News or Yorktown or Hampton or wherever, so the law doesn't apply to me here. What would he say to you? It wouldn't matter, would it? Because you are under his jurisdiction. By the way, we have a police chief in the room with us this morning. If you have questions, you can go to him and talk to him after the service. You are under the law here. You're here, you're under the law. You live on this globe, you are under God's law. You might say, I don't believe in God. It doesn't matter. You could say to the police officer, I don't believe in speed limits. Okay, here's your ticket. Right? I don't believe that the law exists. I don't believe it's real. It doesn't matter. The law exists. The law of God exists whether you believe in it or not. 
It's there, and you are under it, and you will be one day judged by it. You are under the law. Now, that might not bother you if you think you're a pretty good person, but I would just remind you that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Consider the sermon our brother Eli preached a few weeks ago about how anger is likened to the sin of murder. You say, I've never killed anybody. Jesus says, if you call someone a fool or hate them in your heart, you have committed murder in the heart. And the apostle James tells us, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in just one point has become guilty of all of it. So if you break just one of God's eternal and holy law, then you are guilty of all. Do you see why you need to be redeemed? Do you see why you need someone to pay the price? You have accrued a massive sin debt. There's nothing you can do to rescue yourself. Someone from the outside must rescue you. It can't be your wife or your husband because your spouse has their own sin debt. It can't be your children or your parents. They have their own sin debt to deal with. It can't be your neighbor. It can't be your pastor or your elders or your deacons. It can't be anybody who has their own sin to deal with. Someone from outside must come in. And that is exactly what God has sent his son to do, to redeem those under the law. He had to come to save us because we are scandalously sinful. And number two, he had to come because God is supremely holy. God is supremely holy. Over the past year, there's been several high-profile murder trials in the country. Um, they've drawn national attention. I'm sure you've been aware of at least a few of them. Regardless of your opinions on the outcomes of those cases, you cannot deny that the outcomes mattered. They mattered. If people believe a defendant is undeniably guilty and a judge or a jury lets him go free, they get upset, don't they? We've even seen rioting in cities over things like this. Even more, if you're the one who's been offended and the person on trial sinned against you, they took the life of someone you love or they stole something from you or they harmed your property, you definitely want that judge, you want that jury to make sure that they get justice, don't you? It's hardwired into us. You know, this, this plea for justice in our culture, it's, it's hardwired in. We want there to be justice because that's how we were made. We all want offenders to get what they're due, except when you're the one on trial and God's the judge. In that moment, if we're honest, we want a God like us. We want a God like the lazy janitor who will just sweep all the crumbs under the mat. And perhaps you're wanting a God like that for you. You're wanting a God who will say, yes, you're a sinner, but nobody's perfect. Let me just sweep it under the rug, and I'll just forgive you. Perhaps you think, well, isn't that God's job? I mean, that's what he does. He forgives people. 
Yes, he does. That's true. But not in a way that compromises his holiness. He cannot merely forgive anybody. The penalty must be paid. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Because you and I are scandalously sinful and God is supremely holy, we have a big problem. Unless, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Here's the message of the gospel. Here's what Christians believe, that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a sinless life die a sinner's death and rise from the dead so that whoever believes in him can be redeemed, can be set free, not by their own works, but by the work of Christ. If you notice in the text, in Galatians 4, verses 6 and 7, it says we aren't slaves anymore. We're not enslaved by our sin debt anymore. We're, we're sons and daughters. But, but notice how we are invited into God's family. We are not his children by nature. You were not born into the family of God. Young people, you might have been born into a Christian family. You're not born into the family of God. How do you come into the family of God? By nature, Ephesians chapter 2 says we are children of wrath. By nature, all of us are sinners and, and we've fallen into sin. So how are we brought into the family of God? By adoption. God sends his son. The father sends his son to live that sinless life, die that sinner's death, rise from the dead so that God might adopt you into his family Not because of your record, friend, but because of the perfect and spotless record of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross in your place for your sin. Now, here's where I think, if we're not careful, some of us might be tempted to get off the rails a little bit. Because we think, naturally, we tend to think that I've got to earn this somehow. I've got to work for this somehow. I've got to show that I'm worthy of this somehow. Can I just say to you, brother, sister, friend, one of the greatest insults to the Father's love is thinking that you can somehow work to earn it. Years ago, I was living in a neighborhood with a man named Jason. He was a proud man not proud in the way that you're thinking. He wasn't arrogant or braggadocious, but he had standards. And and even though he was one of the poorest men in my neighborhood, Jason wasn't about to receive a handout from anybody. But he couldn't couldn't provide for his family. He was an ex-felon. He couldn't get a job. So I took Jason out to breakfast one morning, and I gave him a Bible, and I put some money in the pages And when Jason found the money later, 
He, he knew that he couldn't just receive a gift like that. He had to work for it. So, so a sick, poor, middle-aged man with a broken hand came to my house while I was at work, and Jason cut my grass to pay me for the money that I gave him. And so I sat down with him again, and we had dinner, and I shared the gospel with him. Jason believed that there was a God. He believed that Christ was real. He believed that Jesus really died on a cross and really rose from the dead. He believed that the Bible was true. But Jason believed that somehow, some way, he had to work for God's love. He couldn't bring himself to believe that he could just receive this as a gift. Maybe that's you in this room right now. You think, well, somehow I've got to pay him back for that. So I, I told Jason to imagine that his dad gave him a brand new Mustang convertible, cherry red, leather seats, $50,000 car. And I said, Jason, imagine that your dad has given you this incredible gift just because he loves you. He wants you to experience the thrill of driving like never before. Now, if his dad had given him that incredible gift, there's two ways that Jason could dishonor his father. One, by refusing the gift, or two, by trying to work for it. Now, I know that the gospel is a far greater gift than a Mustang convertible, but listen to me, dear brother, sister, friend. You cannot, you will not ever work for this gift. You will work because you've received it, but not to earn it. You will not work your way into the Father's love. You will only receive it by grace through faith. The Father had to send his son if you and I are to be saved, and we can only be saved if we will simply receive the love of the Father. Now, let me sh show you one more truth about the Father's love this morning. The Father was glad to send the son. The Father planned to send his son. The Father had to send his son if you or I are to be saved. And the Father was glad to send his son. I'm afraid sometimes, sometimes people think that God the Father is kind of the mean and grumpy one. You know, if one of the members of the Trinity has lightning bolts, it's God the Father, right? He's the one with the big, long, gray beard, we think, and he's got the lightning bolts, and if we do anything that makes him a little bit angry, he's going to get us. That's how we sometimes think about God the Father. God the Son, then, is kind of the nice, gentle one, and he's the one that, that convinces the Father to save us. Listen to me. That type of thinking is nowhere to be found in the pages of Scripture. Praise God. He was glad to send his son. Uh, let me tell you two reasons why. Number one, because he loves you. Not who you might be, who you want to be, who you feel like you are on your best days. He loves you at your worst. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. The Father loves you. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
First John chapter four, verse 10 says, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God the Father loved you so much, he sent his son to bear the wrath of God in your place. That's what propitiation means. He sent his son to die for you. Why? Because he loves you. Or if you go to Galatians 4, verse 5. Why did he send his son to redeem those who are under the law? So that we might receive adoption as sons. God the Father wanted to adopt you. I wonder if you've meditated on that. That God the Father, seeing you, and all your muck, and all your mire, and all your sin, seeing even the way that you would sin after he would adopt you, and still choose to welcome you into his family. This time last year, Holly and I and the kids were finalizing our plans to go to Columbia and meet our son, Ezekiel. We loved Zeke even when he didn't know who we were. We went out of our way to make him ours. But I'll be honest with you, as much as we love him and we do, our love for him is nothing like the love of the Father. Holly and I both have confessed to each other and to others how, how often God has used this adoption to expose the sin and impatience and frustrations in our own hearts, our inability to love as we should. But that is not your heavenly Father. He loves you. Yesterday, we had a men's, uh, a men's group up here at the church, and one of the questions that Jake asked us to ask each other at our table was, uh, what is your favorite memory with your father or your father figure? I didn't plan to share this this morning. It's a little bit embarrassing, but perhaps God will use it to help someone. Um, the, my favorite memory with my dad growing up was after a moment of shame. I was 11 years old, and we were visiting my aunt's house in Georgia for Thanksgiving, and I didn't have a problem with this, but that particular night, for whatever reason, I, I wet myself. There I am, 11 years old, and I wake up on my aunt's couch, and it's soaking wet. And somehow I got to my dad, and I, and I wake him up, and I get him to help me. And I began to think, now that I'm a dad, how might I handle that situation? And I think I would be tempted to say, well, why did you go to the bathroom before I put you to bed? Or what's your problem? You're 11. Or I can't believe you're waking me up in the middle of the night to help clean this up. That's how in my flesh I would want to respond, but my dad did nothing like that. He kindly helped me, helped me clean up the mess, and by the time my aunts or my aunt and uncle and cousins were all awake, no one had any idea what would happen, what had happened. Aunt Pam, if you're watching this today, we cleaned everything up, I promise. <laughs> Listen to me. That's an imperfect father who loved his son and chose to work even to cover over 
the shame and the sin of his son. How much more will the Father do for all who belong to Jesus? Do you really believe that he loves you? The second reason why the Father was glad to send his son. One was because he loves you, and two, because he loves his son. The Father loves his son, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He loves him. C.S. Lewis wrote this book called The Screwtape Letters, and it's, it's a religious satire. And the whole book is about this master demon named Screwtape, and he's writing to this kind of rookie demon named Wormwood, and he's, he's giving him some tips and tricks about how to tempt humans. And he says this uh, about the, the, the contrast between demons and God the Father. Listen to this. He says, we want cattle. Demons want cattle who can finally become food. In other words, when you're being tempted to sin, it's not because any demon has your best interest at heart. They want cattle who can finally become food. But the Father... God the Father wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. I've been meditating on that last phrase, full and flows over. Because God is Trinity, he has existed for eternity in love and a full and overflowing relationship of love. God the Father loving his son, and that love overflowing in God the Spirit. Love, this eternal relationship of love. God did not create us because he was lonely. It wasn't like he needed a friend. He had an eternal relationship in Trinity. He didn't save you because he needed a friend. He saved you because he is overflowing. His love cannot help but overflow. So Michael Reeves in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, says this. The Father is essentially outgoing. It is unsurprising that such a God could create and that we should then be created in the image of God and destined to be conformed into the likeness of Christ. The image is simply the continuation of that outgoing movement of love. The God who loves to have an outgoing image of himself and his son loves to have many images of his love who are themselves outgoing. The idea is not that Christians are supposed to be outgoing in their personality, but our love for one another is always bubbling over to help and love others. Why? Because we're mirroring our Father who loves the Son and loves the Spirit. So as Jesus is about to go to the cross... In John chapter 13, he says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Jesus is saying that the Son is going to get glory in the cross. As the Father sends his Son to die on a cross, he's doing so so that others might rejoice in the glory of the Son. You see Jesus dying there on the cross for your sins, and you delight in him. And God the Father says, yes, because I delight in him too, and I want you and all the world people from every tribe and tongue to see my Son and rejoice in him. 
years ago, I was reading uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to my oldest two kids. Those are the only two we had at the time, Jonah and Zoe. Maybe Phoebe was an infant or in utero, I can't remember. But anyways, they're listening to this story, and if you know anything about the story, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know this scene. If you don't, it's going to be a big spoiler. I'm sorry. But uh, there's this scene where Aslan, the, the lion, this great Christ figure, dies on a stone table. And I remember reading that to my kids and just watching four, two years old, something like that, the look of dejection and sadness and even tears welling up in their eyes as this character that they had grown to love through the pages of this story is dead. And then I read the next chapter. And I hope I never forget that I'm reading them, how the mice come and chew the ropes off of Aslan, and all of a sudden they hear this great crack in the table, and they turn around, and there he is, his mane restored in all of his glory, and my children, Jonah and Zoe, begin jumping up and down on the bed. He's alive! Christian, the father loves his son so much, he delights in you seeing and recognizing and rejoicing in his glory. He wants you to see Jesus and say, yes, he's alive. That's why he was glad to send his son. You cannot rightly tell the Christmas story without the love of the Father who sends. In just a moment, we're going to conclude today's sermon by reading a portion of the Nicene Creed. We talked a little bit about this in our service last week. Uh, this council met in Nicaea at 325 AD, uh, partly to refute the works of a heretic named Arius. Arius was teaching that Jesus was created by God the Father. So this council, this group of pastors was called into the city in 325 to listen to and eventually refute Arius' teaching as heretical, wrong, totally against what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus is eternal. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And one of the things that came out of that council of pastors was this creed called the Nicene Creed. It's a doctrinal statement that uh, defends the Bible's teaching about the Trinity. It's going to be on the screen, and I'm going to invite you, before I pray, if you believe it, to read it along with me. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. Amen. Would you bow with me?